Welcome to the December 2011 Respiratory Care Podcast. With this issue, we wrap up Volume 56 of the journal. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Forge. Sarah, let's get started. Do commonly used ventilator settings for mechanically ventilated adults have the potential to embed secretions or promote clearance? Is by and to Monopoulos and colleagues. The objectives of this study were to determine the inspiratory and expiratory flow bias during conventional mechanical ventilator settings and to interpret those findings in the context of critical flow bias thresholds reported in the literature. The authors measured baseline peak inspiratory and expiratory flows during quiet mechanical ventilation in a convenient sample of 20 intubated and ventilated adult patients. 19 patients had an inspiratory flow bias equal or greater than 10%. 8 patients had an absolute mean inspiratory flow bias of greater than 17 liters per minute. The authors concluded that commonly used mechanical ventilator settings generate an inspiratory flow bias that may promote secretion retention. Animal and laboratory experimental data support that mechanical ventilator settings can generate a flow bias that may result in mucus movement either away from the ventilator or towards the ventilator. Entomolopitis et al. found that commonly used ventilator settings generate an inspiratory flow bias that may promote secretion retention. As Volpe points out in her editorial, perhaps it is time to include a quick estimate of the impact of ventilator settings on mucus movement as part of the routine care of patients. If the ventilator settings can be adjusted to promote airway clearance, this could be of potential benefit for patients. Next is the paper, High Flow Through a Nasal Cannula and CPAP Effect in a Simulated Infant Model by Volsko et al. The objective of this study was to describe the relationship between the pressure generated at the airway opening and flow through a nasal cannula using a simulated infant model. The authors hypothesized that positive pressure generated by a standard cannula at flows greater than 2 liters per minute would be minimal and clinically unimportant. Nares were simulated with holes drilled in a plastic fixture. A Nares template for CPAP prongs served as a sizing template for the holes. Small, medium, and large Nares fixtures were constructed and connected to a lung simulator that simulated spontaneous breathing. Respiratory muscle pressure was simulated by setting a waveform and adjusting the amplitude to deliver a range of tidal volumes from 3 milliliters to 12 milliliters. Lung compliance and resistance were set at 0.5 milliliters of water and 125 centimeters of water per liter per second, respectively. Nasal cannula were inserted into the model nares. The authors assured that the prong occlusion of the nares did not exceed 50%. Cannula flow was adjusted from 2 to 6 liters per minute in 1 liter per minute increments. Data were averaged over 20 breaths. The greatest effect on tidal volume and pressure change occurred with the premature infant cannula. The least effect on pressure change occurred with the infant cannula and tidal volume change with the pediatric cannula. The authors concluded that clinically important pressures were not generated by high flows with a standard nasal cannula. The differences in spontaneous tidal volume across all flows were negligible. 
The use of high-flow nasal cannula in infants has increased in recent years. Limited data are available to describe the CPAP effects that can be expected when using high-flow with a traditional nasal cannula. Volsko et al. studied this in a simulated infant model. Interestingly, they found that clinically important pressures were not generated with high flows with a standard nasal cannula. As Hornick and Turner write, firm recommendations for or against the use of high-flow nasal cannula as an alternative to nasal CPAP will need to await the results of a randomized controlled trial. AcuO2 oximetry-driven oxygen-conserving device versus fixed-dose oxygen devices in stable COPD patients is by Rice et al. The authors randomly assigned 28 patients who were on continuous home oxygen for COPD to use each of three oxygen delivery systems, continuous flow oxygen, CR50, and AcuO2, for eight hours a day for two consecutive days at home at their current oxygen prescription. The AcuO2 is a prototype oximetry-driven oxygen-conserving device, and the CR50 is a standard oxygen-conserving device. The authors recorded SpO2 and calculated the conservation ratio, defined as the duration of a given oxygen supply with an oxygen-conserving device compared to continuous flow oxygen. 22 patients completed all three study arms. Two additional patients completed the AcuO2 arm and the continuous flow oxygen arm. The mean oxygen saturation was 92 plus or minus 4% with continuous flow oxygen, 92 plus or minus 4% with the CR50, and 91 plus or minus 2% with the AcuO2. Oxygen saturation variability was less with the AcuO2. The conservation ratios were 9.9 plus or minus 7.3 for the AcuO2 and 2.6 plus or minus 1 for the CR50. The authors concluded that, compared to the continuous flow oxygen or the CR50, the AcuO2 maintained oxygen saturation closer to the target and AcuO2 had a higher conservation ratio than CR50. Rice et al. evaluated an oximetry-driven oxygen-conserving device versus fixed-dose oxygen devices in 28 patients with stable COPD. Compared to continuous flow oxygen, the oximetry-driven oxygen-conserving device maintained oxygen saturation closer to the target and it had a higher conservation ratio than the fixed-dose oxygen device. As suggested by NAVA, such an approach may be useful to avoid desaturation during the activities of daily living. Moreover, the oxygen conservation might translate to cost savings. Because this was a short-term study, more work is needed to determine the long-term benefits of an oximetry-driven oxygen-conserving device, such as the one used in this study. Next, we have the paper. Survey of Respiratory Therapy Education Program Directors in the United States by Barnes et al. The objective of this study was to seek information and opinions on the ability of the current respiratory therapy education infrastructure to make changes that would assure competent respiratory therapists in the envisioned healthcare future. 
After pilot testing and refining the questions, the authors invited the directors of 435 respiratory therapy programs that were fully accredited or in the process of being accredited by the Commission on Accreditation for Respiratory Care as of May 2010 to participate in the survey. 80% provided valid survey responses. Three of the five competencies related to evidence-based medicine and respiratory care protocols were taught less often in the associate degree programs than in the baccalaureate degree programs. 80% of the baccalaureate degree programs compared to 42% of the associate degree programs instruct students how to critique published research. Only 34% of the associate degree programs teach students the general meaning of statistical tests, compared to 78% of the baccalaureate degree programs. 94% of the baccalaureate degree programs versus 81% of the associate degree programs teach their students to apply evidence-based medicine to clinical practice. Teaching students how to describe healthcare and financial reimbursement systems and the need to reduce the cost of delivering respiratory care was significantly more common in the baccalaureate degree programs than the associate degree programs. Other competencies showed trends toward differences and the baccalaureate degree programs reported higher percentages of success than the associate degree programs. The authors concluded that there are important differences between the baccalaureate degree and the associate degree programs. As background for the AARC 3rd 2015 and Beyond Conference, Barnes et al. sought information and opinions on the ability of the current respiratory therapy education infrastructure to make changes that would assure competent respiratory therapists in the envisioned healthcare future. They invited directors of respiratory care educational programs to participate in a survey related to respiratory therapist practice in 2015 and beyond. They found important differences between the baccalaureate degree and associate degree programs. There are many opinions regarding what the respiratory therapist of the future should do, and there is lack of peer-reviewed research to guide the profession as we move forward. As stated by Goodfellow, an important question is whether our profession is willing and able to transition from where we are to where we need to be tomorrow. User Error with Discus and Turbuhaler by Asthma Patients and Pharmacists in Jordan and Australia is by Beschetti and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the most problematic steps in the use of Discus and Turbuhaler for pharmacists and patients in Jordan and Australia. With the same inhaler technique checklists, the authors asked community pharmacists to demonstrate the use of Discus and Turbuhaler. They also asked patients with asthma to demonstrate the inhaler they were currently using. 42 community pharmacists in Jordan and 31 in Australia participated. In Jordan, 51 asthma patients demonstrated use of discus and 40 demonstrated use of turbuhaler. In Australia, 53 asthma patients demonstrated the use of discus and 42 demonstrated the use of turbuhaler. The pharmacists in Australia had received inhaler technique education more recently than those in Jordan. With the discus, few pharmacists in either country demonstrated correct technique for step 3, exhale to residual volume, or step 4, exhale away from the device.
With the turbuhaler, there were significant differences between the pharmacists from Australia and Jordan, mainly in step two, hold the device upright while loading. Few of the patients had received inhaler technique education in the previous year. The patients made errors similar to those of the pharmacists in individual steps with the discus and the turbuhaler. The essential steps with the discus were performed correctly more often by the Jordanian patients and with the turbuhaler by the Australian patients. The authors concluded that despite differences in Jordan's and Australia's health systems, pharmacists from both Australia and Jordan had difficulty with the same discus and turbuhaler steps. In both countries, the errors made by asthma patients were similar to those made by the pharmacists. Use of inhalers requires accurate completion of multiple steps to ensure effective medication delivery. Bachetti et al. evaluated user error with the discus and turbuhaler by asthma patients and pharmacists in Jordan and Australia. They found that, despite differences in Jordan's and Australia's health systems, pharmacists from both countries had difficulty with the proper use of the discus and the turbuhaler. The errors made by patients with asthma were similar to those made by the pharmacist. This provides further evidence supporting the importance of proper patient education in the use of inhaler devices. Patient Safety Attitudes Among Respiratory Therapists in Taiwan is by Xie and colleagues. The authors conducted a nationwide survey in Taiwan to assess respiratory therapist safety attitudes in several hospital settings. They adapted the safety attitude questionnaire for respiratory therapists and invited all Taiwan respiratory therapists to take the survey. The questionnaire assessed safety attitudes in six domains, teamwork climate, safety climate, job satisfaction, stress recognition, perception of hospital management, and perception of working conditions. The authors analyzed the associations between positive attitudes and each domain. The response rate was 60%. Overall, the respiratory therapists had low positive attitudes about the teamwork climate, safety climate, job satisfaction, stress recognition, perception of hospital management, and perception of working conditions. The positive attitudes to all safety domains were lower among senior respiratory therapists than among junior respiratory therapists. The therapists working in the medical centers had higher positive attitude scores for stress recognition but lower scores for the other five safety domains than those working in smaller regional and district hospitals. The authors concluded that Taiwanese respiratory therapists had low positive attitudes about the surveyed six safety domains in their hospital. High workload, management of RTs under other professions, and lack of protocol use probably contribute to their low opinions about the patient safety situation and low job satisfaction. She et al. studied patient safety attitudes among respiratory therapists in Taiwan. RTs from Taiwan had low positive attitudes about the surveyed six safety domains in their hospitals. High workload, management of RTs under other professions, and lack of the use of protocols may contribute to their low opinions about the patient safety situation and low job satisfaction. Whether or not similar results would occur in other countries is unclear. Next, we have the paper, Prolonged Slow Expiration Technique in Infants, 
Effects on Tidal Volume, Peak Expiratory Flow, and Expiratory Reserve Volume by Lanza et al. The objective of this study was to describe the effects of prolonged slow expiration on respiratory mechanics in infants. The authors conducted a cross-sectional study with 18 infants who had histories of recurrent wheezing. The infants were sedated for lung function testing, which was followed by prolonged slow expiration. The prolonged slow expiration consisted of three sequences of prolonged manual thoracoabdominal compressions during the expiratory phase. The authors measured peak expiratory flow, tidal volume, and the frequency of size during and immediately after prolonged slow expiration. They described the exhaled volume during the prolonged slow expiration as a fraction of expiratory reserve volume. They quantified expiratory reserve volume with the raised volume rapid thoracic compression technique. The infant's mean age was 32 weeks, and they had an average of five previous wheezing episodes. During prolonged slow expiration, there was significant tidal volume reduction, no significant change in peak expiratory flow, and more frequent size, compared to immediately after prolonged slow expiration. The exhaled volume increased in each prolonged slow expiration sequence. The authors concluded that it was possible to confirm and quantify that prolonged slow expiration deflates the lung to expiratory reserve volume. Prolonged slow expiration caused no changes in peak expiratory flow, induced sigh breaths, and decreased tidal volume, which is probably the main mechanical feature for mucus clearance. Despite that prolonged slow expiration can be applied in infants to reduce pulmonary obstruction and clear airway secretions, there have been few studies on its effects on the respiratory system. Lanza et al. evaluated this technique in 18 infants who had histories of recurrent wheezing. They were able to confirm that prolonged slow expiration deflates the lungs to expiratory reserve volume. Prolonged slow expiration caused no changes in peak expiratory flow, it decreased tidal volume, and it induced more frequent side breaths. Whether this method improves outcomes of infants with respiratory disease is yet to be determined. Vibration Response Imaging versus quantitative perfusion scintigraphy in the selection of patients for lung resection surgery is by Comsey and colleagues. They compared vibration response imaging to quantitative perfusion scintigraphy for predicting post-operative FEV1 and diffusing capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide. They enrolled 35 candidates for lung resection. The vibration response imaging measurements showed strong correlation with the quantitative perfusion scintigraphy measurements of predicted post-operative FEV1%, predicted post-operative FEV1, and predicted post-operative DLCO%. There was a correlation between predictive post-operative FEV1 measured via quantitative perfusion scintigraphy and the actual post-operative FEV1. There was no difference between the vibration response imaging measurements and the actual post-operative measurements of the predicted post-operative FEV1. There was a correlation between predicted post-operative FEV1 measured via vibration response imaging and actual post-operative FEV1. The mean difference between the predicted and actual post-operative FEV1 values was 49 milliliters with vibration response imaging versus 230 milliliters with quantitative perfusion scintigraphy.
Neither the vibration response imaging nor the quantitative perfusion scintigraphy predicted postoperative DLCO percent values agreed with the actual postoperative DLCO percent values. Vibration response imaging may be a good alternative to quantitative perfusion scintigraphy in evaluating lung resection candidacy. In patients considered for lung resection surgery, quantitative perfusion scintigraphy is used to predict postoperative lung function and guide the determination of lung resection candidacy. Vibration response imaging has been proposed as a non-invasive, radiation-free, and simpler method to predict postoperative lung function. This was evaluated by Comsi et al. in 25 patients who had preoperative FEV1 and DLCO measurements. They found that vibration response imaging may be a good alternative to quantitative perfusion scintigraphy in evaluating patients who are candidates for lung resection surgery. Our final original research paper is The Effects of Low and High Tidal Volume and Pentoxifylene on Intestinal Blood Flow and Leukocyte Endothelial Interactions in Mechanically Ventilated Rats by Aikawa et al. The authors hypothesized that high tidal volume and high PEEP induce mesentric microcirculatory disturbances and that those disturbances would be attenuated by pentoxifylene, which is anti-inflammatory. They anesthetized, tracheotomized, and mechanically ventilated 57 rats with a PEEP of 10 centimeters water and an FiO2 of 0.21 for two hours. One group received a low tidal volume of 7 milliliters per kilogram, and another group received high tidal volume of 10 milliliters per kilogram, and a third group received high tidal volume plus pentoxifylene. The mean arterial pressure was similar among the groups at baseline and after two hours of mechanical ventilation. Mesentric blood flow was also similar between the groups. Peak airway pressure was lower in the low tidal volume group than in the high tidal volume group or the high tidal volume with pentoxifylene group. There were fewer adherent leukocytes and fewer migrated leukocytes in the low tidal volume group and the high tidal volume with pentoxifylene group than in the high tidal volume group. The authors concluded that low tidal volume with high PEEP was lung protective, and early pentoxifylene reduced the inflammatory response to high tidal volume with high PEEP during mechanical ventilation. The combination of high PEEP and low tidal volume decreases some of the injury related to mechanical ventilation, including pulmonary overdistension, damage due to cyclic opening and closing of the alveoli, and inflammatory responses that can lead to multiple organ dysfunction. Aikawa et al. evaluated the effects of low and high tidal volume and pentoxifylin on intestinal blood flow and leukocyte endothelial interactions in mechanical ventilated rats. In this animal model, they found that low tidal volume and high PEEP was lung protective. Early administration of pentoxifylin reduced the inflammatory response to high tidal volume during mechanical ventilation. December's case reports relate to portable pulse dose oxygen concentrators and why they should not be used with non-invasive ventilation, the use of intrapleural streptokinase for the treatment of chylothorax, use of hypothermia to allow low tidal volume ventilation in a patient with ARDS, and organizing pneumonia and non-necrotizing granulomata 
on transbronchial biopsy with Mycobacterium kansasi disease. The teaching cases are dyspnea associated with dermatomyositis and lung abscesses in two patients with Lansfield Group F streptococci, streptococcus miliari group. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.